Welcome to Rights Up, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. We look at the big human rights issues of the day, bringing in new perspectives from all over the world by talking to experts, academics, practicing lawyers, activists, and policymakers who are at the forefront of tackling these difficult issues. I'm Kira Allman. I'm Max Harris. And I'm Laura Hilly. Today's episode, Old Problems, New Media, Revenge Porn and the Law. It can really destroy every aspect of your, your inner self and your outer life. The psychological effects of it alone can destroy you. Most of the victims that I speak to talk about how they've been diagnosed with depression, with post-traumatic stress syndrome, with severe levels of anxiety. And I mean, aside from that, you just have the symptoms that they experience, inability to sleep at night, constant nightmares, uh, crying all the time, unable to leave the house for fear that people will recognize them. Psychologically, it is just completely devastating. And then in your outer life, it affects every aspect of your life. It can affect, obviously, your professional life. Some of these photos have been sent to victims' bosses or victims' professors, their deans. They've been kicked out of school. They've been fired from their jobs. They've been unable to get interviews for jobs. And socially as well. I mean, you can imagine if someone has some really conservative, strict parents and they find out about this, they they potentially just kick their child out of their family and ostracize them. And, you know, if somebody has a boyfriend and they find this, it really wreaks havoc on that relationship. It wreaks havoc on on friendships because there's, of course, a lot of victim blaming that goes around with this issue. People telling the victims that they shouldn't have taken the pictures in the first place and that they were asking for it. So pretty much every aspect of your life can be negatively impacted by this. This is Holly Jacobs, founder of the End Revenge Porn Campaign and the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. But Holly Jacobs isn't the name she was born with. So my name is Holly Jacobs, and um, it's actually not the name that I was born with. The name that I was born with is Holly Lehuanani Tometz. And the reason that I had to change my name was because I was a victim of revenge porn. Holly is one of a growing number of women who are turning to the law in order to seek justice for themselves and also to take a bigger stand against the growing and disturbing phenomenon of revenge pornography, or as Holly prefers to call it, non-consensual pornography. So the definition that we use is that non-consensual pornography is the distribution of sexually graphic images of individuals without their consent. So it's gotten this name revenge porn, and I think it's primarily a term that the media latched onto because it was kind of, um, for lack of a better word, sexy, and it just grabbed people's attention. And it's kind of, it's got that shock value that will bring people in to read news stories and, and keep watching the news when they're covering this kind of issue. Revenge pornography is a topic that's circulated widely in the news recently, and it tends to inspire heated debate. Over the last month, Kira and I have been talking to numerous academics, activists, and lawyers about this topic. And one thing is clear. It's really complicated. There are so many issues at play here. Privacy, free speech, online safety, internet regulation. But, as we're also finding out, above all, 
This is about gender-based violence. It's about the perpetuation of harm to women in public spaces. And it's about misogyny. We are going to spend today's episode talking about these various interrelated issues of human rights concern, sitting at the heart of both the revenge porn debate and broader debates about how our online identities interact with entrenched societal norms and women's continuing quest for equality in society. Today's episode focuses largely on the transatlantic experience of this issue in the United States and the United Kingdom, but revenge porn and the issues that it raises clearly have global resonance. In the United States, 17 states to date have revenge porn laws. Uh, most of these have come into effect in the last 12 months. Many more states have bills pending. And earlier this year, revenge porn was criminalized in England and Wales. This flurry of legislative activity is indicative both of the reach of revenge porn, but also a growing societal awareness of the damaging impact that it can have on individuals' lives. Revenge porn is not about salacious sex scandals, bad luck, or jerk ex-boyfriends. It's about illegal and even criminal behavior, and it's something that the law is and should respond to. Increasingly, more and more revenge porn cases are making their way to the courts and into our news feeds. One of the most widely covered examples was the website isanyoneup.com, launched in 2010 by Hunter Moore. The site allowed users to anonymously upload intimate and explicit photos, usually of women, usually taken by disgruntled ex-boyfriends, and shared without the consent of the individuals featured in the images. The site closed down in 2012, but many more exist and have popped up to take its place. In February in California, the owner of the revenge porn website YouGotPosted.com was convicted of 27 felony counts in relation to the site and its extortionate sister site ChangeMyReputation.com, where victims could pay money to have their images taken down. These websites and cases are reflective of a widespread phenomenon but it's difficult to know just how widespread it actually is. Who are the perpetrators? Who are the victims? What motivates them? And who is responsible? Those who upload the photos? Those who host the websites? Internet service providers or ISPs? Search engines? Those who view, download, and disseminate? Here's Holly Jacobs again. Some of the most common questions that we get, not just from the media, but also from legislators who are trying to show committees um, to justify why we need laws on this. One of the first things we need to know is how much is this happening? How widespread is it? You know, is it is it something that's happening just to one person in every state or is it happening to thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people around the world? The next thing is we need to know what what the demographics are of both the victims and the perpetrators. And maybe what what kinds of like moderators we might have in those. So I've suspected just from the data that we received and some of the victims that we hear from, a lot of the male victims that we speak to are actually, they're victimized by other males. So what role does sexuality play in this? Does it play a role? So we sat down with Jessica Mason, a master's student in the Oxford Internet Institute. My name is Jessica Mason. I'm a researcher for the LSE Media Policy Project, and I'm also a current MSc student at the Oxford Internet Institute. 
And last year, I wrote my dissertation at the LSE in the Global Politics Program on how civil society groups in the U.S. and the U.K. were tackling the revenge porn issue. What do we actually know about revenge porn as an online phenomenon? There needs to be more research, is the answer. There's, like, McAfee Security and some companies have done some studies. Um, there's studies of sort of sexting in general and the sharing of um, self-generated explicit images that certainly show there's a lot more pressure on women to share these images and that in certain countries, sort of depending on the, the context and the traditionalism and a lot of the ages of the people involved, that women share more of these images, but there's not a whole lot out there pointing to the fact overall that this content is women. However, just anecdotally, if you look at these sites, it's, I would say, 90% women. If you talk to the um, service lines and the social workers and the people who are at the front lines helping this woman, these people, they're dealing with primarily women. If you look at the news stories, it's women, except in the case that you're dealing with a prominent male public figure, in which case sometimes that's a bit different. The internet also complicates what we can know about revenge porn. Here's Mary Ann Franks, a professor of law at the University of Miami, where she specializes in criminal law, constitutional law, and family law. She is also the vice president and legislative and tech policy director for the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. Well, it's very complicated because it's always going to be a question once you involve technology. There are going to be all these questions that have to do with identifying who it is who's disclosing certain information, and that's a lot harder to do nowadays. I mean, if someone is sending a letter or someone is printing out copies and posting them around town, it's not necessarily easy to find them, but it's easier than trying to figure out who uploaded a particular image to a website that doesn't collect IP addresses. So the first big part of it is that the internet makes it so much easier to do things anonymously, or at least with a level of anonymity that's not going to be easy to break through. So that's one big problem. Um, it's also a problem because things can proliferate in a way that they couldn't pre-internet. So even if you have someone who, let's say you have a perpetrator who just did this one time, he just posts it to Twitter, or he just posted it to a particular site, changes his mind, deletes it. Um, by the time he deletes it, if it's been up for five minutes, it possibly could have been copied and forwarded and linked to by hundreds of other people, um, which means that you are not just now facing the question of how to find the original discloser. It's now, what do you do about the hundreds of secondary disclosures that have then occurred? So that obviously creates lots and lots of problems for law enforcement, and I think it helps us see that if we are going to have anything like a solution to this problem, it's going to have to emphasize the moment before someone discloses these images, not trying to fix it after, because the moment that it actually hits the internet or is distributed through social media, it's very, very difficult for law enforcement to do anything. This is a complicated problem. It's hard to document, difficult to quantify. And, with instant anonymity, and the nature of viral content, sometimes impossible to remedy. So what's to be done? How can we make legal sense of this issue? Well, let's start with the definition. Media coverage has popularized the term revenge porn, but what does it actually mean? Here's Marianne Franks again. So one of the most devastating and troubling dimensions of this conduct is that it's clearly an industry in itself. And so there are 
hundreds of sites that are dedicated to revenge porn. And they use that term as a way of letting their users know this is not consensual pornography. This is pornography that is geared towards getting revenge on your ex-girlfriend. So whether or not the material they're showing actually is, in fact, factually um, a partner who's exposing a former partner, that's kind of the term that they're using to try to get people to look at their material. So that term has become, I think in itself, it's a term that's meant to be abusive. It's meant to say, I want to um, do harm against this person and I want everybody to join in on it. What we call this phenomenon might actually matter. On April 13th this year, a new law on revenge porn came into effect in England and Wales. The law makes it an offence to disclose private sexual photographs and films, and convicted perpetrators can face up to two years in jail. But the law is also limited in certain respects. It states that the release of this media content must be done with the intent to cause distress, a definition that would be consistent with the concept of revenge, but might not cover the non-consensual sharing of intimate images for the purposes of, say, simple amusement or financial gain. Some say that the laws in this area could go further to protect victims. Here's Erica Rackley, a professor at Birmingham University, and Claire McGlynn, a professor at Durham University. The law, is, um, as it stands, is an ad hoc response to one particular form of online harassment and abuse. So it covers what's called revenge pornography, but even within the term revenge pornography, it's very limited because you have to prove an intention to cause distress to the particular victim. Now this means that people distributing these images for financial gain, for a laugh, people who are hacked those images and distributing them are unlikely to be covered. Secondary distributors are unlikely to be covered. Those who just carry on perpetrating this harm by distributing the images. So it doesn't cover those examples, but it also doesn't cover a broader range of non-consensual pornography, such as voyeuristic activities, upskirting activities. So it's very limited in, in that sense. What we're talking about here is, is a new way of perpetuating an old harm, the old harm about abuse and harassment of, of women, and that when this was being discussed, there were very particular instances in, in mind, and so the law does address some of those very particular instances, and I think one of the reasons why it is limited is because it's not being seen within that broader context of violence and harassment and abuse against women, but also the need, as, as Clara said, to protect and respect women's dignity and human rights. The word pornography might also be problematic. We talked with Lillian Edwards, a professor of e-governance at the University of Strathclyde Law School, where she teaches internet law. Lillian, should we be thinking about revenge porn as somehow different from other types of pornography on the internet? Yeah, it's very different. It's really a very unfortunate name. Um, people like Women's Aid, who are one of the big campaigning agencies in this field, are in fact saying that we should not use the term revenge porn at all, but it's caught on. We should be using non-consensual sharing of private imagery, but that's not very snappy. Um, if, you, if you look at conventional pornography laws, even before the internet, what they criminalize is material that's regarded as so awful that no one should be looking at it, really. So most typically child pornography, images of child abuse, because any child any child under 16 or 18 involved in sexual acts is being abused, right, because they can't get consent. Uh, and then there's kind of a second classification of pornography, which is stuff that's okay for adults to see, but which you don't want children to see. 
Okay, and then there is a set of laws dealing with that as well, which are slightly different. So things like not selling those materials to children or not displaying them in public, you know, or not making them available in schools or libraries. Right. So it's not cutting off access altogether. Revenge porn, if we if we call it that, is really different in that the materials you're talking about are usually very vanilla you know, to use a, a colloquial phrase, they're, they're certainly not the kind of thing that is banned outright, usually, you know, such as, as I say, child porn, bestiality, snuff videos, that sort of thing. Nor are they even necessarily particularly sexual, such that you even might not want children to see them. It might just be somebody standing there in a skirt and a bra, maybe, something like that. It might even be somebody sitting on a couch, you know, kind of making out, yeah? So the problem with revenge porn is not actually the content itself in a way. The problem is the fact that it's been shared against the wishes of one of the people involved. So I think of revenge porn, and this is why I got interested, as a breach of privacy. That's what it really is. It's about privacy. It's about trust. It's not actually about the sheer awfulness of the content. So really lumping it in with all the other debates about pornography is very much not really to the point. You know, the arguments about freedom of expression and expressing your sexuality, these really aren't the, the issues with revenge porn. With revenge porn, the issue is, did someone consent? Has their trust or their initial consent been abused? So what happens on the other side of the Atlantic? The legal issues around revenge porn initially rose to prominence in the U.S. Lillian Edwards first became interested in the issue of revenge porn while teaching in Florida, where she encountered the unique legal territory that exists in the U.S. around Internet issues like this one. This phenomenon, like most Internet phenomena, you know, kicks off really in, in the States, in the U.S. Um, so when I first became aware of it, as I say, when I was teaching in Florida and some of the big revenge porn websites that post and display these kind of images um, were based in Florida. So it was a very hot topic there. So, so America, um, the attitude very much is that it's about speech, right? And as you probably know, um, speech is very strongly protected in America under the First Amendment, even if we regard that speech as not having very much value, you know, so even titillating um, content such as revenge porn might, might constitute. So, so in America, there was tremendous difficulty, actually, about legislating to try to stop it, because it was seen as a restriction on people's freedom of speech. Um, in America, the, the, the issue of trying to criminalize it rolls on. But what about the website owners, ISPs, and other intermediaries online? Here's Marianne Franks again. At least in the United States, because of a federal law, uh, Communications Decency Act, Section 230, pretty much tells websites that they don't have any obligations, that unlike let's say, a brick-and-mortar building, uh, a bar, a store, where you would have some uh, pretty intuitive understandings about whether the owner would have some responsibility for the kinds of things that happen inside that building, the Internet is different. It's different uh, according to federal law that says you can't really be held responsible for the things that people do in your space. If it's something that they're choosing to do and you just gave them a platform, you as the owner are not responsible. And that's been productive in many ways because we can imagine that if we didn't have some protections for website intermediaries, you couldn't have something like Facebook, right? Because every time someone did something bad on Facebook, then Mark Zuckerberg would be sued or he'd be charged with something and he'd never be able to run the site. 
the same time, you can see how that immunity really creates complete disincentives for anybody who owns a website or an application to take any kind of measures to make their space or their platform um, a space where abuse can't happen. So that's the real challenge is now that you've given these companies so much power uh, to essentially ignore all the misconduct that happens on their sites, how do you ever get them to care a little bit about it again? It's important to note that there is no federal law in the U.S. dealing with revenge porn, so the legal response has been piecemeal, and it's still limited. Traditional civil suits, such as copyright infringement, have proven fairly ineffective in dealing with this unique form of online harm. Several of the people we talked to pointed to other countries that have gone further on this issue, including Israel. So what you've seen with this issue is other countries saying, you know, we don't actually have an issue with legislating against this. So, for instance, Israel criminalizes the conduct a few years ago and calls it a form of virtual rape. That's something that's very hard to imagine the U.S. doing because of its prior assumptions about free speech and regulation. And, of course, England and Wales has now um, initiated this criminal penalties for for non-consensual pornography as well. Other states, the Philippines, I think several years ago, had criminalized the practice with some very hefty penalties. Although the topic of revenge porn has suddenly attracted widespread international attention as a result of ambitious campaigns, activism, and new laws, is this really a new phenomenon? Here's Marianne Franks again. If we're asking how long has it been the case that people have been using private intimate information to shame, humiliate, and harm other people, and I think the answer to that is probably, you know, as long as there have been people. But specifically this phenomenon of using pictures and of being able to say, not just write terrible things on a bathroom wall, which is what we might imagine 20, 30 years ago people might do to get revenge or to um, hurt somebody else. Now you have the capacity to have an actual picture of someone's actual physical body. And that's fairly new. And then the ability to disseminate those images has certainly changed because of the internet. If you wanted to harass somebody using images 20 years ago, you could take that Polaroid and you could make lots of copies of it and you could distribute those physical copies around the neighborhood. And cases like that did happen. And you can still see cases now that have, um, that involve DVDs, for instance, or again, Xeroxes of actual physical photographs. So that still does happen. But the internet makes it so much easier to, to reach a much wider range of an audience um, simply by clicking a button. Jessica Mason. One of the earliest cases was with Hustler magazine, and someone had sent in essentially nude pictures of, I believe, their neighbor, um, and Hustler faced a series of cases that would probably be classified today as revenge porn in the 80s. And in the early 2000s, even Usenet, which is sort of a precursor to the internet and the web as we know it now, had revenge porn as sort of an emerging genre there as well. If revenge porn isn't necessarily a new thing, it points to underlying issues of identity and gender and how they factor into women's experiences in public spaces. And one of those spaces, today, is the internet. We are creating a world that all may enter without privilege or prejudice, accorded by race, economic power, military force, or station of birth. 
We are creating a world where anyone, anywhere, may express his or her beliefs, no matter how singular, without fear of being coerced into silence or conformity. These are the words of A Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace, penned by John Barlow, founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, in 1996. Your legal concepts of property, expression, identity, movement, and context do not apply to us. They are all based on matter, and there is no matter here. Our identities have no bodies, so, unlike you, we cannot obtain order by physical coercion. We believe that from ethics, enlightened self-interest, and the Commonwealth, our governance will emerge. Our identities may be distributed across many of your jurisdictions. In the early days of internet use, cyberspace seemed to promise an online universe free from the limitations on liberty, identity, and self-expression that acted on social relationships in the real world. That initial euphoria surrounding the rise of the internet has gradually given way to more nuanced understandings of how online and offline spaces are interrelated. And unsurprisingly, it's clear that many systems of exclusion, oppression, and marginalization are actually replicated, if not exacerbated, online. This is particularly apparent when it comes to gender. And gender here is more than the distinction between sexes. The issue of gender, both online and offline, is about power relationships, and specifically how patriarchal or male-centered systems of authority affect all of our interpersonal relationships. Recent media coverage and academic research have drawn attention to the ways that online harassment, including cyberbullying and trolling, disproportionately affect women online. In this context, revenge pornography just seems like an extension of existing misogynist behavior on the internet that seeks to intimidate and humiliate. Here's Jessica Mason. So, should we think of revenge porn as a gendered phenomenon? I certainly think it is. Unfortunately, women's bodies are highly sexualized. And there's studies out of Australia and young people in Australia talking about sort of sexting and revenge porn and sharing these images online. And they, they don't necessarily pinpoint these as double standards, but they identify that when pictures of boys' bodies or male bodies go up, it's seen as a joke or funny. Whereas if they're pictures of women's bodies, they're seen as shameful, as women that are you know taking a step outside of what's the proper behavior for young girls or for women. And unfortunately, because women's bodies are so sexualized, these have greater repercussions for women and the behavior that is expected of women. There is a very real connection between bodies in cyberspace and bodies in everyday offline spaces. The worst consequences that can attach to the exposure of this information tends to be for female victims. It's obviously traumatizing for any victim, but because of the double, double standards involved around sexuality, the kind of impact that it has for a woman or young girl's career, reputation, education, is very different from what happens to male victims. So you really do see a lot of sexual judgment, sexual shaming, and sexual propositions that you often don't see when, it's, when it is, in fact, a male victim. That was Marianne Franks talking about the gendered consequences of non-consensual pornography. Here she is again, discussing how these inescapable issues of gender on the Internet first got her interested in topics like this one. And I've also always been interested in the Internet. That is partly because the rhetoric around the Internet in the 90s when I was in college was that we're going to get away from the bad old world of discrimination and harassment. That because the Internet is, or at least it was at the time, uh, text-based, it's all about speech, 
you won't be judged and you won't be excluded on the basis of your appearance. It really will be about your ideas. There was this kind of utopianism about what cyberspace was going to do for all of us because it was going to free us from our bodies. And so for many years, I've been fascinated by the failed promise of the Internet because it seems clear that precisely the opposite has happened. We haven't escaped from embodiment. At least women have not. They've actually been re-embodied in a way online that's been detrimental to their prospects for equality. But what about free speech? As Barlow's 1996 declaration implies, this question always comes up in relation to any online behavior, and revenge porn is no exception. In fact, free speech is often invoked to limit the regulation of revenge pornography. Yet there are certain conditions in which privacy is prioritized over speech, and for good reason. And I think one of the most interesting things about the conversation around revenge pornography and, and sex generally is how differently people seem to regard matters that relate to sex. They see it differently than anything else. Privacy generally, your average person, even in the United States, cares about privacy. The average person is going to say that it's not acceptable for your doctor to take your medical records that you have, you know, freely submitted to and, and freely submitted to the exams and to the questions that your doctor might ask. It would not be appropriate or acceptable for the doctor to take that information and put it on Facebook or to start a website that says, you know, privatehealthinfo.com. Everyone's intuition seems to be that would be wrong. And we actually do have quite strict laws that say doctors can't do that. And not just doctors, but essentially anybody who works for um, a healthcare establishment is not allowed to disclose that information. And even when it comes to something as simple as credit cards, you know, we give out our credit cards all the time to people with the expectation that they're only going to use it for one purpose, then they're going to hand it back to us and never disclose that information outside of that context. The waiter that you hand your credit card to is not going to take it or should not take that and then go in the back and buy everybody drinks with it or publish it or anything else. So we seem to have a pretty good idea, even Americans, I would say, that that's private information and that the waiter or the doctor who would want to take that private information and make it public if he or she would try to say, that's my free speech, I just really want to tell everybody about your credit card information or about your STD, no one would take that seriously. They would say, well, that's not free speech. That's disclosure of private information. You can't do that. Here's Anne Olivarius, senior partner at McAllister Olivarius, an international law firm based in the UK and the US that's been working to tackle revenge porn. There are groups of people that talk about freedom of expression and that you know we should be entitled to have all sorts of freedom of expression. But of course, those arguments are always made at the cost of mostly women, girls, kids, you know, and to exploit them. And so somehow uh, a person's right, usually men's rights to exploit those groups of people, seem to trump what rights those girls and children might have. We're against that. I don't think it's a freedom of speech issue. I think it's a freedom not to have your privacy invaded, not to have to be the object of people's desires. There's also an argument to be made that the free speech of revenge porn victims is severely impeded when these images get posted. Victims often don't just want to disappear from the internet. Sometimes they have to change their names and their entire lives. When one individual's free speech curtails or even precludes another individual's free speech, where do we stand? Here's Holly Jacobs again. The, f the first reaction that somebody has when they see this material online is that they want to throw their computer out the window. They want to close all of their social media accounts. They want to just disappear from the internet. So if somebody is making a living off of running a blog and they have to shut that down, then there goes their means of, of making an income. 
And aside from that, I mean, even if you don't earn a living by running a blog or running a website online, your social media accounts and your LinkedIn accounts, any websites that maybe you've created or links about you, those are all going to affect your life off of the internet. And Marianne Franks. It has become the way to shut a woman up is to say, I'm sure I can find some pictures of you or, you know, in some cases we've seen, uh, have hidden out, you know, let's just try to track her for a while and catch her at a certain moment where I can slip a camera under her skirt or down her shirt, hijack the webcam or any number of ways to try to get these types of images and use them against somebody. That's become a way of telling women to stop talking. And so it seems just, it, it stretches the limits of, of logic to say, well, you have to protect people's right to disclose this type of information, even when it's being quite explicitly done in the service of shutting women up. This is why we should be allowed to do this, so that we can silence women. It, it, it really does show that when a lot of Americans at least talk about free speech, they really mean free speech for some people and not for others. Even with new laws on the books and a growing awareness of this issue, there still remains a question of how victims can seek effective remedies to the harm caused. Actually, how useful are revenge porn laws? And are there other options? So far, we've heard a wide range of legal responses to revenge porn, and some of the existing laws might also have a role to play here. Uh, laws regarding copyright, extortion, stalking, and harassment have all been used. But there seems to be a growing consensus that there's something unique about revenge pornography that requires a specific legal response. For example, the new laws in England and Wales specifically criminalise revenge pornography. And criminal laws like this might be useful. They have the potential to act as a deterrent, but more importantly, they send a really strong message that this kind of behaviour is not okay. This is one possible legal avenue, but it's not the only one, and it might not even be the best one. And even civil claims have significant limitations in terms of providing real justice to victims. Here's Holly Jacobs from the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. First of all, I think the best solution to it is deterrence, right? The best way that we can improve upon this issue and the way that we address it is to try to deter the behavior from happening in the first place. Because like I said, most victims, they just, they want the material to come down. And in a lot of cases, that will never happen just because of the nature of the internet and how quickly this material can spread. So that's why we're advocating for criminal legislation against this. Because perpetrators right now, they're, they're not really afraid of getting sued, especially because most of them don't have money. Even in a lot of civil cases, when there is a judgment, it's very hard to collect money from the other party. Really, the best solution is to, to keep this from happening in the first place. And perpetrators, though they may not be afraid of getting sued, they are afraid of going to jail. Litigation, be it civil or criminal, is not an easy route. Going to court is lengthy, exhausting, and expensive. Here's Jessica Mason again. Absolutely. It's very difficult. If you have money and resources and means, you can hire a fleet of attorneys or lawyers who can vigorously pursue these images. And every time that an image pops up, they can file a DMCA takedown or an equivalent takedown and 
get the images removed. Of course, it's a constant cat and mouse game to some extent. Um, they can also help you pursue criminal and civil charges, of course, if you're able to identify the perpetrator. But if you lack the means to do that, it's much more difficult to be able to find that type of help and support. The big question that we should be focusing on is what do victims actually want? So we asked what other remedies could be made available. Here's Marianne Franks. In terms of the victim who is suffering and saying these are the pictures are out there right now and I need to take them down, the criminal penalty in itself is not going to fix that. Um, it can help hopefully deter people from the future, but it's not going to, to do anything at that moment for that victim who's experiencing it at that moment. So what many states have done, and some countries have done as well, is to do a kind of um, combined approach, which is it has a criminal penalty, but there's also a private right of action where the victim can sue. And the important thing about suing is that you can get injunctions, which can tell people to do things or not do things. And that can be things like, you have to take this material down, you have to destroy all the copies that are out there. And that's something that is really, really important for a lot of victims, because of course, that's what they are really upset about, because this is what's tormenting them every day, is that the image is still up. So in an ideal world, you'd have both. You'd have the criminal penalties that reflect the seriousness of the conduct and the fact that it should be punished, and you'd also provide victims with a practical possibility of being able to tell somebody, you have to take this material down. You, you cannot continue to, to keep this material up in this way now that we have found you guilty of this conduct. In the EU, in the realm of internet law, recent rulings on the right to be forgotten might provide yet another option. Lillian Edwards. There's been a lot of criticism of the right to be forgotten on the grounds that it might interfere with freedom of expression and the historical record and things like that. Let's not go into that debate right now. But one really good use of it, I can see, is as a means to have these photos removed from websites. Because indubitably, an intimate picture of you is your personal data. And that means that under data protection law, you have rights to control that personal data. And the newest right, as recently declared by the court, by the European Court of Justice, is that you have the right to say to someone who's publishing that data, it's wrong for it to be up, you know, it's misleading, it's not right, it's about me and I want it taken down. In Europe, websites are quite used to being told to take down content. There are legal sticks with which you can beat them. Um, if, they, if they publish pornography, for example, and you tell them that they have pornography on their site, then if they don't take down, that site becomes liable for the distribution or the possession of that pornography, right? They become as liable as the person who originally posted it up. If you go back to revenge porn, which, as I say, kicks off and very much has its center in the U.S., then those sites, when you go, if you go as the woman and ask to have your picture taken down, those sites can just tell you to bog off because they're not liable for content provided by a third party. Private, you know, intimate images of probably women from the whole of Europe, the whole of the world, maybe, will end up on websites in America where it's very hard to do anything about them. And the answer is you could get it removed from Google now because that's what the right to be forgotten allows. It says you tell Google that when you search on this person's name, you do not any longer find that the first result that comes up, because these are heavily linked to sites, so they come up high in the ratings, the first thing that comes up will not be the picture of this person, you know, maybe in their bra or less, with a big sign next to them saying, my, my ex-girlfriend is a whore. So to me, it's a very, very useful remedy. 
as I say, whether it's being used yet, I don't know, because I don't know if people have realized you can use it this way. But it also has the advantage of being cheap. It's almost completely free of cost and fast. You know, Google responds to these things pretty fast. And neither of these are true of court-based remedies. The right to be forgotten is tackling new legal territory, laws specific to the digital age. In a globalized world, the internet is borderless, and online crimes challenge traditional concepts of state, territory, and borders. So, does there need to be international collaboration on laws dealing with the internet? Marianne Franks explains why, maybe, we need to have a larger conversation about different countries' laws and how they interact with one another, particularly when it comes to borderless cybercrimes, like revenge pornography. I think there's, there's definitely a good argument for saying we will need international collaboration on these issues, because when we are talking about the kinds of disclosures that are hard to take back, that are hard to correct, I think we, we are going to have to say, we are going to have to confront the fact that the reason why these things are so devastating and so powerful, the reasons are because the internet is global and it doesn't really pay attention to jurisdiction. So if that's the case, then the, the major tech companies of the world, Google and others, they need to be, and I know that they are thinking about this now, they have to understand that they have to develop standards that work globally as opposed to being written for in response to values of a certain society or the laws of a certain society. And we've already seen that in other contexts, there are lots of calls for and actually a lot of work done on international collaboration on certain important issues, including intellectual property issues. We really do have to say, yeah, yeah, this is this is technology that affects everybody, and it goes beyond all countries, it goes beyond all borders, and if we're going to do something to respond to it, then we're going to have to have some kind of really broad-based agreements about how we're going to deal with this type of information. So what do we do now? Anne Olivarius. Yeah, the biggest problem is that we don't have laws that are designed to combat it. The whole cyber world is new and adventurous and interesting, but laws are not designed yet to address it. And there's lots of deep entrenched interests who work hard to make sure that those laws do not get put on the books. Mm -hmm. So we don't have many tools at our disposal yet, and people yet are not worked up enough to really force the hand on. I guess we just have to wait until more girlfriends, more daughters, more wives find themselves in this position until somebody, important people, say, okay, yeah, it does have to stop. Lillian Edwards. I'm fundamentally a pessimist, and though I would really like to see a new, wonderful, egalitarian world, um, I think it's going to be a, take a long time. Lillian Edwards captures something really important here. The issue of revenge porn requires solutions that go far beyond legal remedies. Law is part of it, but it's not all of it. If we want to see real change, we need activism and advocacy that tackles the underlying challenges of gender inequality and misogyny that negatively impact the way that both men and women live their sexual lives and experience the internet. In the short term, though, we need practical solutions that get victims the help that they need most. After launching her own personal battle against revenge porn, Holly Jacobs founded the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. I actually started this organization because I was a victim of non-consensual pornography myself. And when I was going through this, there were so many things that I needed that weren't there. And so the vision that I had for an organization is that it would be a place where victims could get everything that they needed. We advocate for legislation. We educate the public. So we, we talk about this issue and we go around and we give 
presentations at conferences and schools and talk about it in the media, we, I guess I would say, advise companies like Facebook, Twitter, Google, uh, Reddit about this issue and and just advise them on what they can possibly do to prevent it from going up on their platform. We provide support services for victims. So we have a 24-hour helpline that victims can call and they can speak to a counselor who will not just give them some emotional support, but will also inform them of their options with regard to what laws they might be able to use in their cases, what lawyers they might be able to reach out to for pro bono or low bono representation, and anything else that they want to know. In the UK, victims have various resources available as well. A new revenge porn helpline has been launched this year, and organizations like End Violence Against Women and Scottish Women's Aid have made revenge porn part of their campaigns. But before people become victims, what about prevention? Should the potential for this behavior online lead us to certain takeaway messages? Should we be telling people never to take intimate photos? Here's Jessica Mason again. I think that that will see about as much success as abstinence-only sex education, right? And that this is a part of sexuality now. It's a part of how people are experiencing relationships. It's a part of a very sexualized society that we live in, and people do this. But I also think that just overall that's sending the wrong message. It's sending the message that you can't trust people that you're in the relationships with, so if you do this, it's your fault. Whereas we need to be sending the message that if you're in a trusting relationship and you violate that trust, you have committed a serious crime and you can be prosecuted for it. So what remains to be done? Across the board, people who are providing social services need more digital training. That social workers and other social service providers need to understand the impact that the web and the internet have for people today and all of the various hosts of negative things that can happen online and how to best support the people that they're serving. And so I think one of the things that is going to be really helpful in the future is if you're seeking services, if you're a victim of domestic violence, you can go into a social worker that you're working with and the social worker can say, okay, this is exactly what we need to do. We've developed this straightforward way for claiming the copyright on these images and we have this way of helping you take these down rather than having to seek these lawyers or other specialized service providers. We said at the outset that this was a complicated question. And complicated questions rarely have one simple solution. According to the experts that we've spoken to today, law is essential in fighting revenge porn, but it's also not the whole story. At the end of the day, issues like this one cause us to reflect on ourselves and our relationships with society, both online and offline. It demonstrates that the right for gender equality should always remain at the centre of other legal debates around issues on identity, privacy and speech. Rights Up is produced with support from the Oxford Human Rights Hub, providing global perspectives on human rights, and the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities, a University of Oxford initiative that seeks to stimulate and support interdisciplinary research. Special thanks to Sandy Fredman, Tom Peach and our guests. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Kira Allman, Max Harris, and Laura Hilly. And music for this episode was written and performed by Rosemary Allman.